dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Sarita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny. Tonight, he hosted The Tonight Show and had invited me on as a guest. This is John Barber with a very, very special edition of John Barber's World, live from Las Vegas, the only city in America where they don't care if you cheat on your spouse. Just not at cards. The big news this week is that a bunch of sexual predators, the big guys giving us the news, are dropping like flies for unzipping theirs. Charlie Rose, although one of his interns said he couldn't, Matt Lauer, and the Prairie Home Alone companion, Garrison Feeler Teeler. What idiots! But why is it that these guys have to go, but our sexually unrestrained politicians get to keep their jobs? Conyers, Al Frankenstein, Clinton got to stay in office, and of course, currently, so does our Groper-in-Chief. But while all this distracting, salacious, gossipy news is going on about what famous person is trying to screw what woman, not one word from the media this week about Mitch McConnell's reptilians, Republicans, wanting to pass a horrifyingly unfair tax bill that totally, totally screws every middle-class American. But fear not, America and the world are going to be more fully informed about everything, and not from American television, but from Russian television, with my special guest's new uncensored show there. He is, by far, the most interesting, most honestly outspoken, most colorful, and one of the most admired men in America today, bar none. A born fighter from the beginning as a Navy SEAL, becoming famous as a wrestler, pretending to be an outsider, and fortunately for us, still that fighter for truth as an outsider, hosting for years, informing must-watch television shows, writing must-read New York Times bestsellers, a guest professor at Harvard University, running for office and succeeding, the only Reform Party candidate to do so, to me, since the murder of President John F. Kennedy, there have only been three men in this country running for high office that gave me hope there might be hope for America. One, of course, was Ross Perot when on his own dollar, he warned us if Clinton or Bush got into office, they'd sign NAFTA, sending our jobs overseas. His campaign and that of a worthy Ralph Nader were sabotaged and later Nader arrested. But when my guest became governor of Minnesota, against all odds, the best governor they ever had, the only one to get his constituents' tax rebates for me, 
for me, it was like watching Jimmy Stewart in a Frank Capra movie. That's the America we all wanted and thought was possible, but no longer. I and millions of others like me hope my guests would one day run for the White House, teaming up maybe with Bobby Kennedy Jr. or Ralph Nader to administer shock and awe to a warmongering George Bush and to overturn our fake war foreign policy. He chose instead, thankfully, to keep informing us when our media would not. His new show on Russian TV will be one of the most watched news information shows in the world. It is called The World According to Jesse. And believe me, Jesse's world will be a much, much better one. I have waited 18 years since his election to talk to this man, a man who could be a whole chapter in John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage. Governor Jesse Ventura. Governor, thank you so much and welcome to the show. John, I don't know what to say after an introduction like that. I, it's hard to live up to something like that. <laughs> Governor, I must tell you, you are an absolute and total inspiration. And I'm well, beyond thank you. I, I appreciate it. That you, the, and the I problem, will get... The, the problem is, get, though, sometimes you get in trouble for being an inspiration. Well, you, you certainly have gotten into your fair amount of trouble, but you always seem to get out of it with successful law, lawsuits. I will get I will get to the question that I've waited to ask you since 1999 when you became governor and you made this offhanded remark. But first, I would like to know a little bit about your background, where you were born, a little bit about your parents or maybe your siblings. And what you may have wanted to do when you were, let's say, a teenager. Because I could never imagine that you would have ever imagined that your life would take all the twists and turns that it has taken. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, first, John, let me say that I've lived my life very much following the great Yogi Berra's philosophy. When you come to a why in the road, take it. <laughs> Now, I haven't always known if I've taken the right why, but I've taken one whenever it's presented itself to me. And then once you've taken that why in the road, then it's just a matter of doing it to the best of your possible ability until another why in the road comes along, and then you take that one, too. However, so, though, when you were a teenager, you couldn't imagine or could you probably didn't even know there were whys in the road. When you were a teenager, you must have thought there was something that you really wanted to well, do. Well, you know, I, I grew up in South Minneapolis. I was born in 1951, and my parents were both. I, I, I'm proud of the fact that my parents were both World War II veterans, having both served in Europe. Uh, my mother was a nurse in North Africa, and that actually predated Normandy. And my father ended up, he was under, the, the I think, the 699th or 799th, I don't always remember the number, uh, anti-tank division under uh, General Patton. And he had six bronze battle stars, North Africa, Normandy, uh, Battle of the Bulge, Remagen Bridge, Anzio, and Berlin, and survived. Uh, is is this background part of the reason that you joined the Navy SEALs? Well, uh, no. In fact, my father, when I was growing up, and I grew up as a teenager, and of course, I was 
a teenager during the rebellious 60s, so I got to experience a major change that took place in America at a time when I was at my most impressionable years, you know, age 13 through about 20. You know, our, our you, theory, you, you, you get a big impression on life during those years I found in my life. And my father was opposed to the Vietnam War before the hippies were. I would come home from school and tell my dad, the six bronze, you know, battle-starred World War II veteran, I would tell him that they were teaching us we had to fight the war in Vietnam to stop the domino effect of communism, which was what I was being taught in school. My old man looked at me and started laughing. He said, that's what they're teaching you in school? And I said, yeah. He said, that's the biggest bunch of bull crap I've ever heard. He used a different term. But he said, that's the biggest bunch of BS I've ever heard in my life. He said, that well, was the thought that somebody's making big money. Uh, Governor, in that case, did you think maybe you, because if you grew up in the 60s, the, the time of the Beatles and the, uh, the, 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 the flower children, were you being sort of rebellious toward your father when you eventually joined the Navy SEALs? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I was never rebellious to my father. We just had spirited talks. That was life in our house. You know, and is... my mother my mother actually outranked him. He was a sergeant, she was a lieutenant. <laughs> so well, there'd be times there'd, born... no, there'd, there'd be times I'd come home and my dad had warned me, he'd say, Boy, you better watch out, the lieutenant's on the warpath today. Well, uh, uh, we're going to get to something in a minute about when you became a wrestler, because I think that your birth name is just an absolutely beautiful name. And it almost sounds Greek or uh, Slovakian or something. I want to get to why you changed it when you became a wrestler. But if you were born in 51, you were about 12 or 13 when John Kennedy was killed. Did you have any thoughts at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember it like yesterday. It's still vivid in my mind. We were in we were in junior high school, and it came out over the intercom that to go immediately back to our home rooms in the middle of the day that Friday in the morning. We were sent back to our home rooms, and then it was announced to us that there had been an assassination attempt on President Kennedy and that school was closing and you were to go immediately home. And I tell you, that's probably the only time in my entire school history where kids went immediately home. Uh, because when we chatted last week on the phone, you said a couple of interesting things. You mentioned that, that. then of course you mentioned that, you know, you were into the Beatles and music and into girls and sort of, uh, let it pass. But then you said something really, really interesting. And that is when you became a wrestler and wrestler became national so that you had to travel a lot. That is when you sort of by accident began to learn more about the murder of John Kennedy. Could you expand on that for me? Sure. Well, what happened, what you're explaining is, you know, after Kennedy was killed and I watched him get shot by Jack Ruby right on national television, as the whole world did. And, but, you know, you're 13 years old or whatever I was, 12 or 13, I don't remember anymore, 51, 63, 12 and a half, whatever I was. And uh, uh, you just, uh, life goes 
on for you, and of course then the Beatles and the Rolling Stones came along, and I got distracted by music and everything of that whole 60s thing. Then I I went to school. I was an athlete. I was captain of the swim team. I played on an undefeated championship football team. And uh, when it got done with high school, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't feel like going to college and because uh, I had a few things there that went wrong a little bit. So I just decided to join the Navy. And because I was a swimmer, I gravitated naturally to the underwater demolition SEAL community of being a frogman Navy SEAL. And uh-huh. then I went through BUDS training, and I spent my time in the Navy. It's ended up six years, four active, two reserves. And then I got out of the Navy and uh, hung around in California for a while and did really nothing. And then I came home, and it was there that I first, I went to junior college at this point. I was a 23-year-old freshman. And, uh, and Mark Lane was on a speaking tour, and I got wow. to hear him that night. And, and all of a sudden, I, it, 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 you mean somebody's doubting what happened to President Kennedy? See, my life had gone whirlwind from that point on. I didn't pay attention to it anymore. And so what that planted, your, what that planted fa- the seed. What did your father think? What's that? What did, your, what did your father say to you about what you were learning from Mark Lane? Oh, nothing really. I don't think I ever talked Kennedy with my dad extensively, to be honest. Oh. I don't know. I can't recollect that we ever got into a, a hard Kennedy discussion. I know that... Uh, he he used to really dislike Nixon because uh, he told me one day, he said, look at him, you can tell he's lying. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, how do you know he's lying? And my dad says, because he's got sweat on his upper lip. He said, nobody that's telling the truth gets sweat on their upper lip. His, his lips were, were <laughs> moving. I, you know, what, you're talking about a Slovak guy with eighth grade education, and he, but he was... Street savvy and smart. I'll tell you this, and I say it today. My dad's been gone since 91. He, he died at age 83 in 1991. Every day, year that goes by, my dad gets smarter and smarter. Oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. What, did, told what prompted you, as an, as, as an athlete and a veteran, what prompted you to become a wrestler and then well, why that, did you change? And then why did you change your name? Okay. And what did your parents think about your name change? Because you have a wonderful Nothing, because birth I've name. never changed my name. I only have a professional name. Uh, now, oh, when oh, I went to college, what? we got into. Me, I was in the weight room. The guys in the weight room got into wrestling. We started going to the matches, and there was a guy we saw named Superstar Billy Graham. And he was the first bodybuilder-type wrestler that flexed his muscles. And I watched him, and I was doing that. And for some reason, we looked a lot alike, and it, I kind of connected. And I thought I thought of playing, trying to play pro football, but I thought wrestling I like even better because when I went to college, I went on the GI Bill so I could take anything I wanted to. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I got uh-huh. real enthusiastic about theater. I actually did Aristophanes the Birds, a Greek comedy in college. How wonderful. And, and uh, because because of the acting, I looked at wrestling and said, wait a minute, this has great athleticism combined with theater. This fulfills two things that I really like. Why play football where you're just a name and a jersey and your name's on the back of your jersey with a helmet on? 
when I can be a wrestler and I can play to a live audience because it's live theater. It's a, and I've sold out Madison Square Garden. Imagine 23,000 people. That's like them watching you do Macbeth. Well, that was well. Part of the reason for that was that you sort of became what you might call one of these bad guys well, in, and the, that, in the that ring. Leads into and the you know, do you do you remember I, I, I a wrestler by be, the name of Gorgeous George? Right. Well, I you, I wanted to be a villain, and in the case but, of villains in the early days, back before it all switched with Vince and flying and international, what it is today. Right. Back then, there were heroes and there were villains. Well, heroes could only be mom and apple pie and the girl next door. <laughs> villains got to be creative. Oh, because Governor, you be, you're going to get a kick out of this. Is how to because when I had Mohammed Ali on my show in 1970, it was a time yep. when everybody wanted him in prison because he wouldn't go to Vietnam and fight. I asked him when he was a younger Cassius Clay and wanting to be a, a boxer, I asked him who his heroes were. And of course, I thought he was going to say either Sugar Ray Robinson or Joe Lewis. And he said, Gorgeous George, the white Absolutely. wrestler. Yep. And, and, and I was staggered. And I said, why would you say that? And he said, John, it's always the villains that fill Madison Square Gardens. That's right. So that that's who he, that's you know what he wanted to do. the story on that? I beg your pardon? Here, here's how that happened. John, let me explain. Ali, okay. was, uh, who was then Clay, was out, because he's my hero. I know all about him, everything. Ah. Ali, who was then Clay, was uh, out, I think, in California, somewhere fighting one of his very early, early fights after the Olympics. And he was invited to a radio station. And the radio station also had Gorgeous George there that day. And oh, wonderful. Gorgeous George went on and did his deal, did his gimmick, and Ali went on as the quiet boxer, I'm going to try hard, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and all of that, the humble. Well, Ali said that night, Gorgeous George was in front of 10,000 people, I was in front of 400. <laughs> and he said, the light, went, the light went off in my head, wait a minute. You gotta hype these things. You gotta create, and that's right then when he started doing the predicting the rounds and the poetry. Oh, they all must that, fall in the round I call. They all must lose in the round I choose. He's, you know, yes, listed going is, down in so many. That is so wonderful, Governor. That is absolutely priceless. That one of the great uh, heroes in America, this great black boxer, this great anti-war activist admired most a white man like gorgeous george that is just brilliant now you not only became successful as a villain but then more surprisingly you became successful as an announcer did you ever know you could do that yeah because uh, uh when i was a little kid i used to sit in front of the television set and do football games and i turned the sound down and broadcast it myself I'd turn off the national announcers and I'd sit in front of the TV and I would do the football game on my own. Oh, that's true. Now, I want to get back to the point where, where, where wrestling, you said on the phone, became national, which meant that you used to have to travel now by plane and wait in a lot of airports. Yep. I want you to expand on all those books that you began reading. 
Well, what happened was uh, when wrestling made the change and Vince McMahon went national and the 23, 26 territories dissolved and it really became one or two that you could work for, which was good and bad, like everything. It's a, there's a good side and a bad side to all that. I won't go into it. But uh, uh, we started flying everywhere, which means you spend long hours sitting in airports, sitting on airplanes. And I just took that opportunity. I thought, don't sit here dead time. Why don't you read? You know, if you read, you tend to... I've learned this through many years. The more you read, the smarter you tend to get. <laughs> you know, it just happens. I don't know why, but you just become more intelligent. And uh, so I, I, then I thought back to what Mark Lane. So I just started buying. I'd go into these stores in the airports, bookstores, and I started buying anything and everything I could buy that wasn't the government story. I wanted to, I knew the government story, but I wanted to hear why these people were saying the government story was false. And so I started reading, you know, uh, one of the great books, Plausible Denial. Uh, the list goes on, JFK and the Unspeakable, which I found to be dynamite. You know, with, with when I learned that he and Khrushchev were back-channel communicating to end the Cold War by 65 and going through the Pope and the Vatican. I said, how do you, you know, this stuff's better than anything Tom Clancy can write. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and that's what makes it so intriguing to me. It's an ongoing, complete mystery jigsaw puzzle that is true. And all these others, Tom, you know, kudos to Tom Clancy, kudos to the young kid from Minnesota that wrote all those great books. I can't remember his name off the top of my head now. But Vince Flynn, kudos to all those guys. They have great imaginations. But I, I, don't, I have my own imagination. And what drew me to the Kennedy books was the fact this is a real event and these are real people. And I've, I actually went to New Orleans once because we were down there, and I found 1313 Dauphine Street, the, the address of Clay Shaw. And it was oh amazing. While I was standing there in the evening, a guy came out, and I confronted him. I said, is this the house? And I didn't even get it out of my mouth. He goes, unfortunately, yes. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, <laughs> I didn't even get Clay Shaw out of my mouth. I said, I was going to say, is this the, the, because we're in the French Quarter, is this the house that Clay Shaw lived in? And he told me, yes, it is. And I said, yes, thank and, you, I won't and, bother uh, you anymore. I just wanted to know for sure. I guess, as you saw in the documentary, oh, by the way, did you get the, did you get the DVDs I sent you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. well, when you, when fact, you get if, to view them, you will see. If you could send me a couple big, more, I'd be appreciative. I will certainly do that, but you, you saw when when Jim Garrison arrested Clay Shaw and they discovered that he had a lot of deviant homosexual practices, he had ordered his staff. They would never report that. They were only interested in the case, which brings me in a roundabout way to the question that I've wanted to ask you for 18 years, and you mentioned it sort of offhand, but it really struck with me, but before I ask that, of course, we had an actor, Ronald Reagan, who became a president. And we have an actor, wrestler like yourself, who became a politician. Why on earth, uh, first you ran for mayor and were successful. What on earth prompted you then to run for governor of Minnesota when it looked like, like all odds that you would not win? 
Well, because uh, they did something that angered me. I, w- I had I served one year as mayor, and I had cleaned the city up, and I we uh, and the and the new people had taken control. So I felt my job here is done. I'm a great believer that when you're done serving, you serve and then go back to what you used to do, or you go on to a new career. You you shouldn't make see. That's why I don't call myself a politician. I'm a statesman. A politician makes it his career to get elected over and over and over. A statesman goes and serves, and when the statesman's done, he goes back to the private sector. That's what I Well, do. This, brings, this brings me then to the question. Well, and that I question think, is this. Then when, you, when, you what think... happened, I, I went into a new venture. I went into talk radio. And while I was doing talk radio, three or four years went by, and Minnesota got this huge budget surplus. If you remember during the Clinton years, everybody was making tons of money, and the interest rate was less than 1%. I should say the inflation rate was less than 1% for that decade almost. Well, the state of Minnesota ended up with multi-billions of dollars of surplus money they didn't budget for, and they spent it. And I was on talk radio going, what right do they have to spend? They budgeted. They should live within their budget. That money should be returned to the taxpayer in some manner. They don't have the right because the economy's great and the taxes are obviously too high with a strong economy that they're making billions and billions of dollars and that lets them be kids in a candy store. Well, I kept talking on it and then off the cuff of my I, on the radio, I happened to just say you know, maybe I should run for governor. <laughs> and oh boy, was that a mistake. Because all of a sudden oh, no. I was besieged it, it with wasn't, people. It wasn't a mistake because as I said in my introduction well, to you. Tongue in cheek. I'm saying well, that once that I said that the cat was oh. then I got besieged with people. Run, Jesse, run. Absolutely. And, and, and they and haven't stopped saying that to, 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 to this day. Okay. Now it brings me back to the question. You were elected in 1999. You gave a brief news conference. Now, 1999 was uh, six years after I'd done the first Garrison tape. And I've been trying since 1970 to tell Jim Garrison's story. So I was very interested of course, deeply involved in it, and then learning all I could about what he said were elements of the CIA that murdered our president. And lo and behold, there is the new governor of Minnesota saying one of the first things he did or had to do was be interviewed by CIA people in your office. Is that true? Well, it wasn't in my office. It was in the, 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 the yeah, it happened. It was in the, uh, it was in the bowels of the Capitol because the, the legislature wasn't in session, so it's like a ghost town then. And at the room, there were 23 of them, so they had to have a pretty big room. 23 so CIA <laughs> agents? Huh? 23 CIA agents? Or potential ones, I guess. They said it was a class. Oh my God! Because uh, you and I know that when it was formed in forty, the CIA was formed in forty-seven, and Truman said it was one of the worst mistakes they ever made. They were only supposed to gather intelligence outside America internationally. Why on earth would they be coming to question a, an independent governor of Minnesota? And what on earth did you think about it? 
Well, I I was patriotic, and so when they more or less requested that I ask me if I'd do it, I said sure because I my curiosity was piqued also, and it's a life experience, isn't it? I, I, mean, I would I'd say so. No, what was, what, what were some of the things they asked you? What's that? But Governor, what were some of the things they asked you? Oh, and did they ask you it things? was very interesting. Everything they wanted to know about was how I got elected. <laughs> That's so they could prevent it the next time, probably. Well, oh my. I, I immediately, when it was done, I went home and I immediately called my friend Dick Richard Marcinko, the guy that writes the Rogue Warrior books. Yes. Yeah, he was the creator of SEAL Team 6. He's a friend uh -huh. of mine. I called Dick, and I told him what happened. I said, Dick, you dealt a lot more with the, with the agency than I ever did. I said, what do you think this was all about? And Marcinko, he's a rogue. He's a, he's a great guy. He starts laughing on the other end. He goes, they didn't see you coming. <laughs> and he said, now oh, they're trying to God. figure out how they missed you. Oh, my God. You know, it's like a scene out of a Peter Sellers movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why I had to do it when they requested it. I thought, I got to see what, what. And you know what the scary thing about it was? The really frightening thing about it was more than anything? What? These 23 people that were sitting there looked like your neighbor. Oh my gosh! And I they mean, they are. didn't look like they didn't look like buffed out Dwayne Johnsons, you know. <laughs> they, they didn't look like The Rock. These people looked like the lady next door that sweeps her step. Wow! They, they, they went all gracious. ages. They were from young to old. They, it was scary. But that's what I got. I walked away from going, oh, my God, these are people you'd walk by on the street and pay no mind to. Oh, it, and I was asked that one, one time. Great when I, when I got out of the Navy, a few of my buddies this, went into some interesting jobs. And I asked one one time, how come when I got out, nobody offered me no jobs like that? <laughs> and he looked at me and he started laughing. And he goes, well, they want people that don't bring uh, uh, attention to themselves. Well, it's, it's what's been described <laughs> as the banality said, of evil. Okay, well, Governor, I said I wouldn't put too good, then, would I? Because I always bring attention to myself. Well, but you do, it in, you do it in an interesting and informative way. I mean, it just, you're a gem. Okay, now, you, you're, you're involved still to this day. In informing America, and and you're in this, you're you're still politically active now. In nineteen, uh, in two thousand and eight, in two thousand and eight, you were campaigning strongly for Ron Paul. Now I must say, to me, you were the inspiration when you when you won the governorship of Minnesota. Like I say, it's a Frank Capra movie. To me, the most disappointing politicians. And I put a bumper sticker of Ron Paul on my car. It's the only man that Jefferson would vote for. I couldn't get it off, so I had to sell my car because he never lived up to his promise of hopefully running in a, in a third party. And when Bernie Sanders started to run a year and a half ago, I said, that guy's going to turn into the Democrats' Ron Paul. These are people that give us hope and then break our hearts. Now, I know well, you campaigned for Ron Paul. Your thoughts about him and any of the private conversations that you might have had with him 
that might have given you insight as to why he didn't run as a third-party candidate? Well, you know, ultimately, it, they they all seem to have their loyalty with the two parties when it comes down to it. It, it just seems that way. Uh, but there's I nothing still, in the I Constitution like about Paul. two parties. I, I don't think that Ron Paul necessarily, he did more for this country than all the rest of them have, so I wouldn't be so down on him. Uh, you, well, know. He, you know, he did bring attention to the Fed, which of course is six private banks for crying out loud. But since he and he's still working run, at it, I I was just out in Aspen, Colorado, uh -huh. a month ago, and there was a that thing a get together out there between the who I consider the three most revolutionary, call us politicians, statesmen, whatever you want in America, one Republican me the independent and one democrat we all got along great and we showed that the three of us could work together at easily do you know who the two people were ron paul myself and dennis kucinich oh how interesting was that now there you go phenomenal See, okay a few years ago I did a uh, special show about uh, uh, the 50th anniversary at UNLV, and one of the panelists was Dick Russell, who is a close friend of yours, works uh, a, a huge admirer of yours. And I know that Dick was really interested in hoping to talk you into running for the presidency. And a couple of times, I do recall, if you were quoted correctly, as saying, you were going to sit back to see what happens before you would announce. Did you that's, seriously that's true. sit yeah, that I, I gave it, it serious thought. In fact, I was last year, last election, I was invited to the Libertarian Convention. And, but, but Governor Johnson was dead set that he wanted it. I didn't want to get in his way necessarily. And plus, when it came down... This last election, I ended up voting for Jill Stein of the Green Party. Well, you see, okay, now I'm going to get to the, uh, Governor, I'm going to get to the business of celebrityhood. Had, had Dr. Johnson been smarter, he would have turned it over to you because you are one of the most phenomenal celebrities in America. America's now drenched in this celebrity culture. And we only follow celebrities. So I'm going to ask you this particular question. I have always said I'm opposed to any of these JFK conferences in Dallas or New Orleans or Pittsburgh or wherever. They're all meaningless. Jim Garrison solved the case. It's an open case at the Justice Department. There are people alive today who should be questioned. At the end of our movie, we deliver that wanted poster to the Justice Department. I've always said... November 22nd should be America's Bastille Day. All of these people should get together and march in Washington. But there are only two people in this country today who are celebrity enough, who have credibility enough to lead such a march, and that is yourself and Oliver Stone. Is this something that has ever crossed your mind? Well, not to lead a march. Uh, I have said that if I if I were to become president, all the documents would immediately be released, and that it's still a murder case that should be reinvestigated, and uh, because we have evidence, and it could, could rightly reach a conclusion if the evidence were all considered. And I believe strongly that 
a coup d'etat took place that weekend or that week, and we have not truly been in control of our government ever since. Because I always remember this. If you can kill the president and get away with it, what can't you do? Well, that is exactly right. Governor, you you did, and I listened to it often, a wonderful, wonderful show was called Off the Grid. What happened to Off the Grid? And then now you must tell me how you ended up, thankfully, <laughs> at Russian TV. I mean, it seems we're getting better news about what's going on in America from Russian TV. Than we'll <laughs> yes, ever we get are. Well, how, what, happened was, what happened to Off the Grid? And okay, tell me about your new show. Here's how Off the Grid came about. I was doing a book tour because I live in Mexico now, roughly three to four months every winter. And I was back up doing a book tour, and I and I did an interview with Larry King, and I thought Larry had left the air, but he he had gone into partnership with a Mexican gentleman and created Aura TV on the Internet. So I was intrigued by that, and they made me an offer that I could do the show down in, off the grid in Mexico where I only had to drive into town. They'd have a thing, and because it's Internet, all you got to do is be able to lock onto the satellite. It don't matter where you're at. And so the show went terrific for a couple years, and then they had a big change in management. And whenever they change the guy who's running things, I know this from from previous business, generally he'll get rid of all the talent and get his own. And I had over a million people were tagged into Off the Grid. And I, I some days I was 80% of their hits. And they basically made me an offer that was laughable, which is telling you, move on. So I moved on. What happened happened was this. During this time, Russian TV started picking up my off-the-grid show, and they started showing it, uh, segments of it on theirs. And they came in and said, if if off-the-grid doesn't want you, we do. So I negotiated. I say this proudly. uh, I was with the William Morris Agency. And uh, they called to congratulate me. They said in their long, illustrious career out there, it's the first time they've ever did a deal with Russia. Oh, how wonderful is that? <laughs> yes. And uh, my belief is this. Why am I on RT today? Number one, uh, they, they, they never interfere in anything I want to talk about. I have complete artistic freedom. Uh, they've been wonderful to work for. The best I've ever worked for, I think. We never pre-interview our interviewers. You go to all these other networks; they do pre-interviews with you because they want to know. Yes, what and then the interviews turn out flat. You. The, the interviews then turn out flat because you've wasted it before you go on the air. It isn't even that. It's just they want to be able to know where not to go, what you might say, so they can try to limit you and direct you the way they want you. At RT. That is a no policy. We bring people on and they're free to say anything they want. We bring them on because they may have something we can learn about the subject. And well, so, I would only hope whole, that... And I want that, to do this. I, I'm tired of the Cold War. I'm sick of being enemies with Russia. I'd like to try friendship. After all, we, can't we try it for five years? And then if we don't like it, we can always go back to being enemies, can't we? Well, that is the greatest uh, peace speech ever made by a president was June 10th, 1963, which was at American University. And that's where we showed our film two weeks ago, The Standing Room Only. 
And my hope is that if next November 22nd you're doing a show about the assassination, I would love to be able to come on and let you show a couple of clips from the movie. Or if you're doing a show about the media. Now, I, I got a better idea. Between now and April, how about having you, you on my show so we can keep their feet to the fire before they delay it any longer and continue to break the law? Well, Governor, that would indeed, indeed, indeed be an honor. That, for no, I've already told my people because they suggested, well, let's do the show in April when the documents, and I went baloney. I said, you got to keep the heat on them, otherwise they're going to delay April till next year. And I said, so you got to keep the heat on, so I would rather do JFK stuff prior to the documents being released. Oh, how smart, because it was June 10th that he did that speech, and a lot of people gather at Lincoln Center on June 10th instead of November 22nd. But for you to do that in April, which is around April Fool's Day, that would be fantastic. No, I want to do it before that. I want to do it like in, in February. So that we keep wow. the heat on. I want to keep the burner. You got to keep the. In order for water to boil, you got to keep the the fire going. Well, I'm going to send you the two more DVDs. So I have a couple of last questions. Does yep. your son and Oliver son do a show on RT also? Yeah, it's called Watching the Hawks. Oh my gosh! How they've been, is they've that? been on now three or four years. They actually, both of them, worked on my conspiracy theory show its last year. I remember them. I remember them. I used to yeah, watch you guys they, in, they got in, together. in the, in the room plotting they, out your shows. And, and it was you wonderful. Gotta imagine this. Imagine the trouble that's going to cause when you got Oliver Stone's son and Jesse Ventura's son collaborating on things. <laughs> the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> no, Oliver okay. and I are. I consider Oliver a good friend. Uh, I consider what he does a service to our country, and I also people need to remember this about Mr. Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone was one of the few rich kids that ever, or well-off kids that ever went in the military. He is a decorated Vietnam veteran who proudly carries the Purple Heart. Well, you know, quite often the revolutionaries are those from the upper classes who realize how corrupt it is. I mean, Castro's father was a very a famous, uh, very, very famous doctor. But anyway, if it had not been for Oliver Stone making JFK, I could have never, ever, ever done the two documentaries that I did that cataloged Jim Garrison's amazing life and his amazing case. I would hope that with your success, it again pops up in your mind that you might consider running for the presidency again. And if you did, how would well, your son and your wife feel about it? Well, don't bring my wife in on it because she's, she's going to be a big negative. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I always answer and I don't try to be evasive, but I can't predict the future. And I don't know when that why in the road that Yogi talks about will come up again, but you can bet when it does, I'll take it at least a few more times. So if it's in the cards, it'll happen. If it's not, it won't. And that's kind of how I view life. I'm 66 right now. Uh, it's also, for me, it's do I really want to do that for four years that ages you about 10? 
You know, yeah, I can, I can well understand now, that, but I'm you would be a, you, out, I'm, I'm the weight I was in the United States Navy now. <laughs> that's and, and great. I feel good. And do I really want, I've already given 14 years, six in the Navy, four as a mayor, and four as a governor. That's, that's 14 years of public service. When does your next uh, World According to Jesse air? Uh, Friday. Okay, where can Friday folks, where can folks uh, find it? 30 6.30 Central. Okay, and, and they find it on RT? RT, uh, if you get uh, direct TV from the satellite, it's channel 321, 321. Well, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that you took out the time to talk to me and also to express an interest in the American well, media and the second assassination of it, President John F. It, Kennedy. It, I mean, you all of Let this. me make a statement. It's my pleasure that people like you are still out there fighting the good fight because it's the one place where you start getting depressed in my position where you think nobody's listening, nobody cares. But I always get rejuvenated like when I go to New York City when people on the street come up to me and say, Jesse, keep doing what you're doing. And Abs so, absolutely. You must remember like something, you. and you're probably well aware of it, uh, Governor, that no crowd ever changed anything or improved anything in history, in art or politics or science or religion. It was always the black sheep. Jesus only had 12 disciples. Castro only had 10 guys in a rowboat. And in the American Revolution, less than 3% actually wanted to fight the British and create this wonderful country that grow, grows people like Jesse Ventura. I want to thank you again very, very much. Also, thank Thank your wife, because I think she's your biggest fan. And I look forward to talking to you perhaps in February next year. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell my people we're going to get you. You're going to go on my show now. Well, Governor, th thank you so much. I truly, truly look forward to it. You have a wonderful holiday, a great new year. And as uh, Ed Miller used to say, good night, good luck, because we're going to re-air re this Christmas Day as a Christmas present to America from Governor Jesse Ventura. Governor, well, thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you, and, and happy holidays to everyone out there, and I look forward to it. Thanks. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, thanks. Bye-bye. We will be right back with the incomparable Joe Satilli. Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep? Conspiracy theories and the true story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn amp, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ, 107.1. I'm Richard Bowser. This is the great BBS Radio. 
Hi, this is John Barber. Welcome back to the very special edition of John Barber's World here in Las Vegas. We just finished a wonderful, wonderful uh, interview with Governor Jesse Ventura, and you finally got to hear the question that I wanted to ask him for 18 years about why the Central Intelligence Agency, 21 of these guys would want to talk to the newly elected independent governor of Minnesota. And now we're back with my dear, dear friend, without whom I could not do this show, and without whom I could not be well-informed, is the creator and author of the best newsletter, daily newsletter in America, called uh, News Vandal. And as and again, I must tell you, we're going to re-air this again on Christmas as a Christmas present to you all. Anyway, my cohort, Joe Satilli. Joe, welcome to the comments about the tax thing that I sort of mentioned Mitch McConnell being involved in at the top of the show. You want to expand on that a bit? Well, sure, because, you know, ironically, uh, it's been been sold by President Trump as a big Christmas gift to Americans. Right. This tax bill. And it's it's really it's a it's a Frankenstein bill at this point. Now, so we're talking, um, you know, on November 30th, the just today. It's um, heading towards the floor. There are debates happening. It looks like the, the Senate is starting to line up uh, Republicans. John McCain said he's going to vote for it. Ironically, there are a bunch of provisions in it that most of the Republican senators haven't seen yet that are secret. And, you know, there are a number of different questions about this bill. Look, this is a typical hoard money at the top kind of tax bill. It's being sold as a jobs creator, but every single analysis that I have seen over the last 20 years has shown that there is absolutely no correlation between tax cuts to the upper brackets or to corporations and, and job growth. As a matter of fact, this is you know, because this is the selling point. You know, we're going to have if we have this tax cut to corporations, we drop the, the rate down to 20 percent. Now, the effective rate is actually 18 percent, even though the legal rate is like 35 because of all the loopholes most corporations don't pay 35% as a matter of fact there are there was a year where i paid $2000 in taxes on less than $20000 in income because it's tough oh to be a journalist oh my gosh that's to, horrifying well because i because of self employment tax and that same year G, uh, boeing actually got a tax rebate now they didn't pay taxes they got money back from the government so that's, you know, the tax system is arcane and Byzantine, and it's been sold as we're going to simplify the tax code and reform it. It's tax reform, John. It's reforming. No, it's a giant tax cut. And as a matter of fact, Cisco Systems, Pfizer, Coca-Cola, Amgen, a bunch of corporate heads have just said in the last few days that the money that they get, the windfall that they get, is not going to go towards capital investments and growing business. It's not going to go towards paying people more in their paychecks, which is what Paul Ryan keeps saying. Oh, if we give a tax cut to corporations, they're going to put that money in your paycheck. No, no. They said they're going to get, they're going to do what? They're going to give it out in dividends to shareholders. And then the other thing they're going to do is they're going to go, they're going to go back into the market and use it for buybacks. And stock buybacks is one of the reasons why the stock market is so high because CEOs and, and, and corporate leaders they have incentives generally built into their contracts that if the stock price goes up, they get paid more. 
And in addition, their, their compensation packages generally include stock options. So that's a double whammy. If they can make the stock price go up, they get paid more, and then they often get paid in stocks, and so they get paid more in stocks as well. So is, is this the reason the stock market seems to be rising? It just seems to be a freak of nature and anomaly to me because we don't make anything in this country. Nope. So why on earth are these prices going up on the stock exchange? Because we have a highly financialized economy, which means it's not about making widgets and selling the best widget. And then people go, wow, you sell the best widget. I want to invest in a company that sells the best widget. And boy, you pay your people enough to where they can go buy the widgets from other companies. And all of a sudden you have an actual functional economy. Like this was the economy of the 50s. This is the, the economy that built the, the middle class, right, uh, of the Eisenhower years and, and leading into the Kennedy years. No, now what you have is a financialized economy where one of the things we make is debt and we repackage debt into things called exotic financial instruments and then we sell debt as a commodity. And because the financialized economy is really about moving numbers around on computer screens and, and speculating, one of the things that tax cuts do, particularly and have done since the original big tax cut the original trickle-down tax cut of the Reagan tax cut, is it emboldens people at the top who are suddenly given a windfall of extra capital to continue to speculate. And one of the things that people tend to forget is that the great economic miracle of Ronald Reagan's tax cut, you know, we're all talking about, wow, he, you know, it's morning in America. Remember that, John? It's morning in America. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. there, it was then morning with a U in America on Black Monday in 1987 because the Reagan tax cut really only created about three to four years of actual functional growth. It was all based on speculation, and people forget about things like junk bonds and corporate raiders. And that turned into the big crash of 87, which then – in concert with the savings and loan scandal, which was about deregulating savings and loans, which drove up a bunch of speculation, that double whammy created a persistent recession, one of the worst recessions of the second half of the 20th century, that ended up costing George Herbert Walker Bush his job because it was the economy stupid when, when Clinton ran against him. So <laughs> that's what these things do. They create bubbles, bubbles burst, and then... In the process of the bubble bursting, the people at the bottom get soaked, but the people at the top who made money on the rise up, they either see the bit, the bubble bursting in the offing, so they, they then bet against their own investments, so they, they make money on shorting the market. Then when the market crashes, they cash in on that. And then if they are exposed to any kind of problems, they have the power to go to the government and have the government come and bail them out. Meanwhile, the, 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 the last... The last bubble burst was nine years ago, 2008, yeah. and there were a handful of very smart people who predicted the bubble burst, yeah. and they benefited by it, and they got out of the, the market. Do you see that happening? It seems to me it has to be inevitable because it seems so artificial. It does feel that way. I mean, I you know, everything that I read and all everything I look at says it's a matter of time, and when I look at this is, you know, the boom and bust cycle. I wrote a, like a 20,000 word three-part series on this for Truthout a couple of years ago. 
when you look at the boom and bust cycle, it is as it is as predictable as the sun rising. The difference with this one is that in particular, this market has been running wild in no small part because they anticipate this coming tax cut. So a lot of this is speculation. You're speculating by investing in companies because you want to have a huge investment when the tax cut comes so that you can cash out and take profits. So I have this weird feeling that one of the things that could lead to a little bit of a run is profit taking. Because once you've made all these investments and if you if the big tax cut comes, why would you not want to taste a little bit of what you've been speculating on? That's not probably going to do it. I think that there are other fundamentals in place, like the price to earnings ratio, which continue to be completely grotesque. That's the, the, the price of a stock versus its earnings. The larger that it gets, the more the less rooted in reality the stock price is. So we're at very high price to earning ratios. So what? It, it seems you to know, me that it seems to me that the the, the bubble is going to burst at some point. It's a matter of what triggers it. And then when the run comes, because look, we have a subprime auto lending bubble because we have subprime lending, just like the subprime lending that led to the housing bubble. It's not as big. But it's 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 like 1.3 trillion dollars. It's I guess it's opposing. It's a it's around a trillion dollars. We have the student loan bubble. That's 1.4 trillion. That the uh, the defaults on that are rising. Household debt just reached a new record. And in in this tax cut, this is one of my favorite things about it. Is that it's it there's kind of a reverse Robin Hood thing that happens by 2021, I believe it is. A lot of these tax proposals in there for the people at the bottom to get their tax cuts, like some people, a lot of people are going to get $100 a year in extra money, right, from the tax mm -hmm. cut. These are going to be sunsetted. There is a sunset provision for most of the tax cuts, except for the tax cuts for the people at the very top. Those are permanent. And the and corporations, those are permanent. But if you earn between twenty dollars and $30,000, your taxes are going to go up in 2021. If you earn... $75,000 or less, your taxes will increase by 2027. Everybody well, else. Joe, you know, if, if, if you're earning twenty dollars to $30,000 and your taxes go up, you're a paycheck away from homelessness. Yep. And, and that is only going to increase that problem in this country. There, there are two groups of people that we do not seem to hear about in the news at all. We don't hear about the very small elite that own the country, and we don't hear about the growing numbers of people who can't even eat. I mean, yeah. there were news sto there were stories that I got on the internet. A church here in Las Vegas had two thousand turkeys to serve on Thanksgiving, and they had five to seven thousand people show up. So there were four or five thousand people they couldn't feed. That happened in churches in Los Angeles and all around America. I mean, there is like a whole growing army of homelessness around here. And when I was in Washington, D.C., I actually drove by, not hundreds of yards from the capital, a tent city of homelessness. Yeah. Well, here. I mean, it's shocking. John, here in Silicon Valley, I could literally get in my car 
and in, in three minutes, as I take the tunnel to go from the island of Alameda into Oakland, you pop up, and there's that's where all the there are a number of freeways are intersecting there, 980 and um, and 880 and so on. It leads to 24 and the Golden Gate Bridge. There are whole cities, tent cities, built under the overpasses all around Oakland. They're all around Silicon Valley. And, you know, you pointed this out the last time we talked about this, and I think you actually had a great post about it on uh, Facebook, about the, the turkey giveaway and how there is this brewing issue out there. We, you know, the division between the haves and the have-nots is growing. And, you know, Trump can trumpet the growing stock market, but the overwhelming majority of Americans get zero out of a rising stock market. The people who get that get all it's like 10% gets 80% of all those gains in the stock market. And so th this is in a way this whole tax bill is seems to me kind of like a last hurrah because it's everything is now so uh so grotesquely unequal and even though this is a replication of the Reagan tax cut and in some ways it's a replication of the Bush tax cut that happened before the last crash, it's it's everything is so so distorted. I think the time frame between the boom and the bust is going to be diminished. It's going to come very very quickly. But unfortunately, the people at the top will have hoarded so much as a result of this tax cut because they are going to get such an immediate windfall. They're going to be. Are they going to have any incentive? Any incentive to? put that money back into the economy? Why would they? They've never done it in the past. The incentive is actually, John, if there is going to be some kind of massive social dislocation because people will finally have enough, have had enough, you're going to want to be able to afford to escape from it. And the kind of gargantuan inequality that we have, in a sense, creates a specialized bubble of wealth around the people at the top who will be able to pay their way out of all of the fallout that is caused by the inequality that they enjoy. Well, I must tell you, I am so thankful that I lived through the era that I lived through because I lived through an era uh, looking at political and life in America when there were heroes to look up to. In literature and in movies, there were heroes to look up to. In television, there were heroes to look up to, yeah. Jack Parr and Ed Murrow. They do not exist anymore. And if I were to, if I were a younger person and I were to have my child now, I would take my child to Europe where he or she could get a free health care and a free education. I do not know how Americans get by today without going postal. It is just beyond me. And, you know. We were talking about earlier with Governor Ventura and how we get so much off of Russian television. I must tell you, when I want to learn about uh, the economy, I either talk to you or I listen to Max Kaiser on yeah. Russian television. And you've been on with Max. Yeah, more now, than uh, quite a few times. So why don't they give you your show on Russian television? You deserve it. <laughs> Well, I've also been on uh, Tom Hartman's show on uh, RT. Look, uh, I just got to keep plugging along, John. There's, you know, there's plenty more to 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 do every day. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I do the rundown is because one day at the top, it's going to be 
American conservative. The next day, it's going to be American prospect. Another uh, another day, it's going to be the nation. It's going to be scientific American. You know, the information is out there. It's out there. Yes, it, yes, it is. It's just yes, a matter of, you know, of putting it together for people and giving them access to it. And Okay. And, and tell them where you know, they I, can... Tell them one, where they one, can one get One thing I want to say, you know, you know, you and Jesse talked about the pre-interview, and you 